welcome Dr. Armand Tagazada, Dr. T, to episode number 37 of the Path to Fall podcast. Very pumped that you are on and in back at Gilman here today. I know you come and train a lot here, right? You do a lot of workouts on the turf, um, but it's great to have you in the building, and, and I'm, I'm pumped. I've got a lot of questions for you about sports psychology and everything that you do with our athletes, with your podcast, the Mindset Experience, and um, I'm, I'm excited to pick your brain a little bit today. Yeah, I appreciate it. Thanks for having me. It's always great to be back here. Always great to be back here. Yeah. Um, the first thing I want to ask you about is the book that you brought in. We usually save the book recommendation to the end of the episode, but it's so bizarre that I have been watching David Goggins' um, interviews and podcast episodes and you know, I've, I've listened to him a lot, but this week in particular, I was looking up just his mindset towards life because in, you know, in advance to talking to you, I was like, who, who can I really listen to, to maybe prepare some conversational to- topics with Dr. T? And it, of course it's David Goggins. Um, so why, why'd you choose this book and how did you get on to David Goggins? Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's funny, man. I mean, to be mentioned in the same sentence as David Goggins, that you're, you're preparing for me by reading up on Goggins is a, is a pretty big honor. So, he's a superhuman. Um, 100%. But you know, what's really interesting. He's really not right. So he, he's an average guy who's had a really, really difficult upbringing. Um, why I picked it is I was, I was told to bring a book, right? A book that inspires me. So I do my homework, I listen and I always prepare. So that's why I got Goggins. But so it's called Can't Hurt Me, right? And it's um it's his story and what it what I love about this story and what it speaks to me is you know, this is a guy that had every reason to fail, right? Every reason to fail. He had a tragic upbringing. He was abused as a kid. Um, you know, he had learning challenges. Um, he didn't have the support um that a lot of other kids have and he talks about how he had every reason to fail and he did, right? He failed multiple times. And, you know, he tried to cheat his way through things. And it wasn't until he got into these situations where he really had to sort of look at himself and what he wanted and what he had and sort of decide like, look, I have to decide what I want. And I can make all these excuses of why I can't do this and why I can't do that. And I can feel sorry for myself. But like, that's not going to help me. And I have to really look within. And so he really started identifying ways to push himself and challenge himself and and really be able to overcome it. And so when you look at what he's done, right, he's like the only guy that's graduated from, you know, that's been in the Navy, that's been in the Army, that's been in, um, you know, Army Ranger School and 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 BUDS and Navy SEALs. He f- basically was asked to leave. Uh, he got through Hell Week two different times and had to start back from the beginning on the third time. You know, I think the first time he had double pneumonia, maybe the second time he had fractures in his legs and they said, look, we're going to invite you back because you keep winning everything and beating these challenges, but like you have to pass. And he just kind of wills himself. Um, how I got turned on to it, honestly, this was a gift. This was a gift uh, for me from my wife's mom who knows that I'm always pushing myself, challenging myself, looking at ways to kind of develop my mindset and be able to teach other people. And so she said, look, I think you're going to like this book. I didn't know much about him, mm-hmm. right? And I started reading and I was like, this is incredible. And there's a couple of things that really speak to me and we can talk about that. But what I love about this, and I use this as an example, and I told you this earlier, that I bought this book for athletes that I work with, students that I've worked with, um, 
at various levels, um, all of whom have had more than he had, but sort of talk about their challenges. And I use an example of the fact that at the end of it, you get to choose, right? You may not be able to choose your circumstance and what you came in with, but you get to choose how you respond, right? Mm -hmm. And he has this 40% rule, right? I'm not sure if you're familiar with it, but he talks about that when human beings think that they're at the end of what they're capable of, Mm -hmm. they've only hit 40%. They've only hit 40%, right? And if we understand that and we push a little bit harder and a little bit harder, like not everyone's going to be the world pull-up champion, right, or win ultra marathons. And and he, he does things to an extreme to some extent. But the idea is that if this guy who came from nothing and had all these reasons to fail can continue to push himself and challenge himself, then like most of us can do more than what we're capable of. And that's yeah. why I love his book and his story. And that's why I think he's so inspirational. But at the end of it, he's a, he's a normal human being that's just beaten and beaten and beaten down. And he just continues to claw back. So yeah. he's become superhuman. And we think he's superhuman. But he's got a lot of demons, man. He's got right. a lot of struggles. So I think in that sense, I think it's a powerful book. He, willful, he willfully puts himself into positions on the daily basis that are we would never most people would never think to put themselves in but he enjoys that he exactly what you said earlier embrace the suck he epitomizes that you know that slogan embrace the suck he finds something that's brutal that most normal modern people would never even think about doing like running i don't know what what his running challenges are but they're ridiculous they're numbers that you 100 miles 200 miles yeah 200 and miles and he looks for them he looks for them yep And what's interesting is, you know, you talk about those things and these are all, we think of these as physical endurance challenges, right? But when you get to like, listen to him talk and you read his story and I've listened to other interviews with him. And by the way, I have to tell you another book that you'll have to read that, but he does these ultimately to push himself mentally as well. It's about how can I put myself in these uncomfortable situations and see what I can do with it and see how I can challenge myself. And, and he does it in a lot of ways to overcome the challenges that he's had growing up and some of the struggles that he's had. And so he continues to put himself in these situations to grow mentally, to get tougher, right? We use that term mental toughness all the time, right? This is the guy that epitomizes it. And it's really being comfortable with being uncomfortable, right? Mm -hmm. Being in challenging situations, figuring it out and believing that just when I think I'm done, I can push a little bit harder. I can push a little bit harder. And I think if we all take that message, in whatever we do, particularly when we have these, some of the luxuries that, that we have now, think about what we'd be capable of, right? right? And so I think if we all took a little bit of Goggins, um, you know, I, I think it would help us. If we took a lot of Goggins, I think the world would be a scary place. It but, would be, for But sure. a little bit, I think it would be helpful. And he wasn't always like this, right? In high school, he was kind of lost. He didn't really have much of a future. He was playing video games in his basement. He was, you know, a little overweight. He... He, ha- he did not have this mindset, but he made the mindset that he has today because he forced himself into situations that, you know, that, that sharpened his mind yeah. and sharpened his toughness. And a lot of it came to a point where he, like, he cheated his way through school. He failed a lot. Like, he wasn't a little bit overweight. He was a lot of overweight, mm-hmm. right? He's mm-hmm. like, you could see a shadow in the back of this. He was like 300 yeah. and some pounds, right? Yeah. And he was working for like an extermination company like and he's underneath like this sink and all these cockroaches are coming out and then he goes home and he's like eating donuts and he's like what am i doing and he watches something some infomercial about the military and he's like that's what i'm going to do so he goes to do the entrance exam and he realizes like he fails it because he's just been cheating his way then he does the physical fitness test and he fails it and he's like what am i going to do with my life and he starts to realize like when his back's against the wall 
And he's like, either I'm going to continue to be like a victim of my circumstance and make all these excuses why I can't, why I can't, I can't, or I need to start doing something. And that's kind of like, you know, you hear about people that sometimes in their rockiest moments or in their darkest moments or when their back's against the Mm -hmm. wall, that's when they come out finally, like that's their turning point. And I think to some extent he talks about that that was the moment and he started to push himself and challenge himself. And then it was like just identifying one thing after another and it, I mean, he had tons of setbacks throughout it. Like everything he succeeded, you know, hell week, he failed two times, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. He he won the world war, uh, pull-up record champion. But the first time he did it, he wasn't prepared and he like burned himself out. The first race he ran, by the way, he was drinking Myoplex protein shakes and Ritz crackers, had nothing to, knew nothing <laughs> about nutrition. And he put himself into kidney failure, ended up in the hospital. Really? So like everything, but then he learns how to do it a smarter way and another way, right? So everything you think about that he does, that he's grown. We look at like, man, he's accomplished this, he's accomplished this. But even through each of those accomplishments, he's had a ton of setbacks and a ton of quote unquote failures. So one of the things I love that he says, he says there's no gift as inevitable um, as failure. Mm-hmm. And he talks about failure as a gift, right? And then it's inevitable. Like inevitably we're gonna fail, but it's a gift. Because if you look at it and you learn from it, then I think it's a great experience. And when I work with athletes and teams, and I've worked with a lot of Gilman teams, I redefine and reframe this word fail, F-A-I-L, as first attempt in learning, right? So if you we think about failure as like not meeting our expectations, falling short, we have all these negative connotations, right? And we get down and our confidence is down and our performance is down and we quote unquote fail a test, right? Whatever that means, right? Whatever we define as that. So then we think, oh, I suck at this class or this teacher's horrible or I'm not smart, But if you look at these as attempts in learning, right, first attempt in learning, and if you fail more than once, it's further attempts in learning, you start to look at it as opportunities to get better. Mm -hmm. And in his case, he calls it a gift. And he Mm -hmm. says it's inevitable. So if we go into situations, and that's what I love about that is when we go into situations expecting to do well, but even if we fall short and we quote unquote fail, we can learn from that, Mm -hmm. then that's incredible, right? And so his mindset has been learned over time. He didn't have it in the beginning, right? It's been learned. It's been cultivated. It's growing. And for me, when I'm working with teams and athletes and individuals, um, whether they're they're athletes or they're not athletes, whatever their challenges, I think having relatable experiences can be really, really valuable as far as identifying here's somebody else that's had some struggles. Yeah. And this guy's had it all, right? And had it all. Failure is a definitely a relatable experience. doesn't matter what that failure is. Everybody has setbacks in their life that we can all relate to. And that's why talking to you is, I think you're going to reveal a lot about, you know, how people can move on from failure and take that failure as a source of, you know, overcoming and getting better and becoming, you know, with that guy Goggins mindset to something better, something greater, right? Absolutely. And and that's another thing that he talks about in his book and, and talks about a lot, right? He makes these, I see him a lot on Instagram with his like three minute videos They're of him, him running in the desert. And if you watch one of these videos on David Goggins, you know, his Instagram, his Twitter on YouTube or whatever, you're going to want to get up, whatever it is you're doing where you're sitting around on Netflix or, you know, sitting on your butt, you're going to get up and want to go and for a run or do something productive because this guy can motivate mm-hmm. for sure. 
Yeah, no, and, and he's big on not feeling sorry. You know, when COVID first hit, he talked about, I'm getting all these messages that I can't go to the gym. I can't work out. I can't do this. And when you filter out all of his language, right, there's a lot of bad language. Lot of but language. he says, look, I don't give an F or I don't give an S. Like, get up and do something. People are dying. People are doing, like, get up and move. And so, again, I think that he's gone through so many circumstances that it's so easy for us to come up with reasons why we can't do things. And, and, and I think in his case, he has no tolerance for that because there were all these reasons he couldn't do things. And he sort of decided, like, if you want to do something, you have to find a way and you have to look at what you can do. And I think that's what's really valuable about him. I wouldn't necessarily recommend everybody live their life like Goggins because it's such an extreme lifestyle and there isn't a lot of balance in there. But I think if we take that perception of that we're all capable of pushing past where we think our point of like, mm-hmm. uh, where we think we've hit a wall and he's saying, look, you can go further. You're only at 40%. I think that's a very valuable message that anybody can take, whether it's in the classroom, whether it's in the theater, whether it's on the athletic field, wherever in the fa- in your family situation, in your relationships, wherever it is, if you think I've given everything, I can't do any more. It's just not working. If you knew you were only at 40% and it's like, well, there's a whole, I'm not even at halfway. Like, what can I do a little bit extra? I think if you take that mindset and that mentality, you can we can accomplish a lot more for sure. I love the forty percent rule that he talks about in the book. I also like the accountability mirror where he, mm-hmm. I think he puts sticky notes in front of you know the mirror where he brushes his teeth every morning, and that just reminds him, you know, little slogans, little quotes, little goals that he has that he wants to reach. He sees it every day. Every time he looks in the mirror when he's brushing his teeth, he has to he has to own what he did during that day, whether that's for good or for bad. He he has to check in with himself, which is also something that I think people, you know, could can take and use in their own life a little bit. Yeah, I think you're right. I think, again, it comes down to what you want to do. If anyone reads his book, why well, I love his book, too, is at the end of each chapter, there's like a, a challenge, basically. I mean, he's talking to the, to the audience about, listen, at the end of this chapter, here's what I want you to do. Here's what I want to think about. So it's not just here's my story, here's my life, here's everything I've overcome. They're real actionable kind of items that anybody can take and really integrate. And he calls himself out on his own faults too. I mean, that's not, he's not just talking about, I came from nothing and look how great I am. Even now he talks about his struggles, right? And the things that, that he needs to continue to improve on and what he's doing to do that. So it's a great book. He's a really inspirational guy. I just think it's, you know, it's just another example of somebody out there who's not only talking about it, but he's lived it and he's showing it. And I think that's important because in any space, there are so many people that give advice and they talk about what you should do. They themselves don't follow it or they right. don't have necessarily the background. And I think, you know, this is a guy that's very inspirational and there's some messages that can resonate for anybody. But, you know. He, he walks the walk. He talks the talk. And he's helping people because, you know, he, he has a whole tribe now who's following his oh, yeah. his accounts. And they're all working out because they know that Goggins – is out there somewhere and it's a lot worse whatever he's doing he's running 200 miles at one time he's a freak yeah Um, yeah yeah so if i if he's running 200 miles i can run two right or if he's doing a thousand push-ups i can do 10 push-ups right or if he's writing a book i can read a book i mean that's the other thing right it's just basic things like if he can do these things we can also do a little bit more and i think if we think about it that way then everyone can challenge themselves to be a little bit better. And that's what, to me, that's what's so impactful about it. You got to read, there's another book called Living with Seal. I don't know if you ever heard about that. So Jesse Eitzler, who I'm a big fan of and I follow him and I'm uh, in this community with him. He owns the Atlanta Hawks. His wife is Sarah Blakely, who owns Spanx. He's a multimillionaire, has a penthouse in Manhattan, a house in Atlanta, a thing in a uh, house in the woods in Connecticut. He hired Goggins to live with him for one month. 
And oh, the no. caveat that oh, Goggins no. said was, you do everything I say. And so he's waking this guy up at 3 a.m. to go for a run, 4 a.m. to do this. And he changes his whole world of thinking about these luxuries that he has that he takes for granted. And it's sort of like a diary account. It's like day one, blah, 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 day two. So it's really funny because it's written from a different perspective. And you get this sense of like, you know, this urban guy from a really, really difficult background who's now living with this you know, relatively affluent guy from a very cohesive background and how those worlds come together and how really when you distill it, it comes down to like what's important in life mm-hmm. and pushing yourself and challenging yourself. And so now Jesse Eitzler runs these ultra marathons and all these other things too. So it's a pretty cool book. It's called Living with Seal. I'm going to have to check that yeah, out. That sure. sounds awesome. Yeah. Um, I want to maybe ask you a couple questions about how athletes in particular can take this mindset, right, and the confidence that Goggins exudes if you listen to him the guy is so confident because he's he knows that he's doing you know he does his workout at four o'clock in the morning or whatever and he gets it done by eight o'clock in the morning and nothing can phase him right he's got the most confidence in the world he doesn't really care what the rest of his day looks like because he got the hardest part out of the way before 8 a.m right um how can maybe we can get into like how how do athletes acquire a mind like this unshakable confidence whether that's on the practice field where i'm just coming from lacrosse practice and you know i see see guys and i've lived it from playing sports my whole life where you're not playing to the best of your ability you're probably playing at your 40 percent level because you don't have the confidence in the mindset that um it it can take to raise your game that mental piece and i know that that's your domain you're an expert at it you're you know that's what you do for a living you have this podcast the mindset experience which what we'll get to but um you know how can guys and 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 girls and all athletes develop unshakable confidence in their in their craft yeah so it's a it's a great great question i think there's two parts of it right one is what he does, right? When you talk about how they can get confidence like David Goggins, one is that he admits his vulnerabilities, right? He looks into his deficits, right? You talk about that accountability mirror. He looks at himself and he, and he really questions, am I doing everything I want to do that I say I'm doing? Am I actually living it? I think one thing that a lot of athletes do, right, is we say we want to do one thing, but we really do another, right? Or we say we want to present a certain way but we don't really want to look at ourselves and so we project well it's the coach's fault it's like my teammates my teammates aren't playing well coach isn't playing me it doesn't really matter anyway um you know i don't really want to start anyway and and we start to come up with all these excuses and different things and and one thing that i think is so important is that if you really want to grow confidence you have to be willing to admit your vulnerabilities and you have to be really willing to look at that and and ask yourself am i really at 100 mm-hmm. percent?" because again you're really not, right? Even if you think you're at 100%, you're at max only 40%, right? So if you take that idea and you say, all right, what can I look at that are that are things that I can improve on? It's not what do I suck at or what am I not good at? It's what can I improve on? Am I really putting in, am I afraid of hard work? Am I afraid of failing? Am I afraid that if I actually give it my all and I fall short, then I actually have to live with that, right? That's an important thing, and that's something he does. And and when you listen to him in interviews, they they talk about why is it so important that you're talking about this? And he said, look, I wasn't always like this. I was beaten. I was abused. I was stupid. I cheated. Like he talks openly about all these things that other people would be ashamed of or try to hide, 
Mm-hmm. But he puts it all out there. And once he puts it all out there, he's able to then address them and he feels more free. So I think one thing that athletes, you know, and anybody really can look at is say, look, what are my deficits? What are my vulnerabilities? What am I afraid of? Because that's an incredibly important thing. It's a scary thing because you don't know what you find. But once you find it and you're willing to address it, right, then, and that goes to that whole embrace the suck, right? Like if you're willing to find what sucks about you, and you can embrace it, then it's not as scary. Because when you embrace something and you hug it and you pull it in, it's not as scary. We like to avoid. We like to push away. That's one thing. The other thing I think is important. Real, real quick, one thing before you get to your second point. Uh, I, I think that can be difficult for some people too, though. Like, like as an athlete, maybe introspectively studying myself and figuring out what am I doing wrong. That's not easy, especially you know if you're – a high school or your college athlete putting the lens on yourself right that, that's difficult how do you that that's almost like a skill that you have to acquire yeah, right but that's where the growth comes in right look it's not easy to run sprints it's not look eight sprints fine the ninth one's hard that tenth one right it's not easy to do but you can do it mm-hmm. right because you don't think about it you're like coaches making me do it right it's not easy to play lacrosse right you just came from lacrosse practice in the miaa it's not easy to play lacrosse at this level Mm -hmm. and to continue to every year think you're great and then butt up against these other teams and fall short and figure out how are we going to improve it's not easy but we do it why because we don't think about it in the context of ourselves but we still do it it's not easy to go to school like gilman it's not easy to be surrounded by other really really bright kids kids that have come before you and achieved all these great things right and be like well what if i don't get into like a harvard or yale or princeton right like These are the thoughts that kids have, but they still show up here and they still work every day because we put it on something else, right? So we have the ability to do it. But I think that if you look at it, that anything worth doing and doing well is going to require a little bit of pain, right? And if you truly want to grow, the question is, do I want to look like I'm growing or do I truly want to grow? But if you truly want to grow, it has to be somewhat painful because that's where the growth process comes in. When everything's going well... That looks great and it looks great on the outside, right? And your hand is raised and you're smiling and you have an A on your paper. That's not really growth because what are you really learning, right? It's all external, right? The internal part is the painful, hard part, almost embarrassing or vulnerable, but that's what you have Listen, to do. think about when you're a kid and you're, look, I don't know this because I'm on the shorter side, so I don't know what it's like to have growing pains, right? But other <laughs> people, when they're growing and they're going through puberty, it hurts. It's called growing pains, right? Yep biologically we're wired that when things grow it's painful when you're in the gym and you're working out and you're sore and you're fatigued that's when you're growing right like that's when your muscles actually grow right um when you're studying hard and your head hurts and you have a headache and you're just like oh and you're questioning yourself it's uncomfortable that's when you're learning so part of it is if we understand this will make us stronger. This will make us better. Then it's then it's going to be okay to look at it because yes, it's scary. But if you know that on the other side of it, by doing it, it's actually going to help your confidence and your growth. That's important. The other thing is knowing, look, I got support. Like even if I get into a situation, I have coaches, I have teachers, I have mentors, I have parents, I have doctors. I just need to ask for help, right? So I think that's important. Yes, it's scary. Mm-hmm. Yes, it's scary. But again, it's kind of like, do you really want to succeed or do you just want to say you're succeeding? Do you really want to be a great athlete or do you just want to be on the team, mm-hmm. right? Do you really want to be a successful student or you just want to have an A on your paper? Right, right. So there's this sort of like, what image do we want to portray and what do we really, really want to do? And I think in his case, 
all once all the 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 image stuff went away and he kept trying to cheat his way through life and he had to look at himself and he's 350 pounds looking in the mirror scraping up cockroaches and eating donuts he was like i have nowhere to hide so now what am i going to do so that's where i would say about that the other thing i would say is look you talked about confidence confidence is learned in my opinion you're not necessarily born confident or not and i think any athlete can learn that if i'm not confident I can learn how to be it. And part of it is by doing the uncomfortable things. Part of it is like putting in effort, right? Part of it is like showing up with a positive attitude, right? And by positive, I don't mean everything's great, it's amazing, but it's like I'm willing to work. I'm willing to be here. Being appreciative. So I talk a lot about effort, attitude, and gratitude. And that if we focus on those three things, we're going to be able to increase our chances of being successful. And if we increase our chances of being successful, our confidence is going to grow, right? And when we're more confident, we're more willing to do the uncomfortable things. So those two things go hand in hand. But this guy wasn't born confident. Until still to this day, I think if you truly, truly talk to him and listen to him, he looks unflappable and he looks like he's got all the confidence in the world. But if you listen to the way he talks, there's a lot of vulnerability, man. There's a lot of pain there. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of pain there. And he, mo- he uses that to motivate him. Hmm. So it's also okay to be not okay, mm-hmm. right? It's okay to be uncomfortable. Um, but I think if you utilize those things, and I think that's to some extent what keeps motivating them. Now, I've never personally met Goggins. I will at some point. You'll get it's him on, on my list. We'll get him on the podcast. Oh, I'm going to get him. Um, <laughs> but, um, and I've never evaluated him, so I can't say clinically. But I think if you truly, truly listen to him and listen to his story and listen to him talk, he's so candid. He's so vulnerable. He's so open. I think there's still a lot of pain there, and he uses that, I think, to motivate him. Because the things he does— are probably not half as painful as the things he's experienced in his personal life. For sure. So if he can go through those things and survive, what's a hundred mile race? Right. 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 Like what's like, you know, whatever it was like 14,000 pull-ups. It was some ridiculous amount of pull-ups. Like what are these things if he's already gone through all these other things and he survived? Yeah. Right. For sure. For sure. And I think for any of us, man, if we show up to a school like this and we're working hard and we're day in and day out putting in the work, like what's another couple sprints on the athletic field? Yeah, what's awesome. another couple pages to study, right? Like what's an, like, what are the, we're already here to get to a place like this and be challenged by your peers and your teachers and your mentors and your parents. You've already done it. Mm-hmm. Just show up a little bit more. Just put in the 50%, the 60%, who knows? Yeah. And that's the other thing about Goggins is he, he's not doing any of this training for anyone else. He's not waking up at three 30 in the morning for anyone else. He's doing it just for himself. He's That's not it. fighting any wars. No He's one, just building himself up. Right. No one's paying him extra to do this or, you know, he. it's all for his mental ability. And he says to prepare him for life, right? Because he's already experienced a lot of hardships in his life. And he's like, you know, this is just this is just physical conditioning, right? Yeah. This, this is going to make me better mm-hmm. mentally. And it's making other people better. He had a guy recently reach out to him. The guy had tried to do like a 200-mile race and had fallen short and just couldn't continue. Somehow he reaches out to Goggins. Goggins reaches back out to him and says, let's do it next week. He's like, next week, I'm not ready. I just finished. He goes, I'll be there next week. Let's do it. They did it together. Wow. And the guy finished it. And he's like, I wouldn't normally, but it was like some, a, a random dude that he had inspired who fell short, but then was uncomfortable enough and vulnerable enough to reach out to this guy, David Goggins say, I failed. And Goggins said, I'm going to come next week and we're going to do it together. And they, they ran slash walked this 200-mile race. It was crazy. And it was on his social media. Unbelievable. And I think if he can do it again, he can inspire other people. And then, you know, and then there's us 
right, who are finding other platforms to kind of build on that and inspire people. So if you start to find people doing that in different capacities, then overall we can all work together to inspire not only ourselves but each other, and that's pretty cool. Another guy I, I watch and, and follow is Jocko Willink. I'm sure you're familiar yeah. with him. He's up at 4.30 every morning, 3.30 every morning. He takes a picture of his watch at 4 in the morning and just posts it to his Instagram every single day. Mm-hmm. Um, but he has a video that I'm sure you've seen, but people might like it. It's called Good. It's like Good okay. Period on YouTube. And it's exactly what you're talking about with Goggins. It's He brings up uh, a couple hypothetical scenarios like, uh, I forget, like something happens, you get caught off in traffic and you're late to your job, or you get or even more drastic scenarios that ha- can happen in someone's life. And, and it's always the answer is good. Because it's you know it's an opportunity to get better. He sees every failure as an opportunity for growth. I think you'd love that. that yeah. Video. So he has a, he has a book called Extreme Ownership, and he really talks about that wherever you are, whatever situation you are, whether you're the top or you're the bottom or whatever, if you take ownership over what happens, right? And he talks about in the military that you know even as a leader, if you're you know the the bottom guy messes up, that's on you. But if you're the bottom guy and the top guy messes up. That's still on you if you want to be a leader. And it's this idea of accepting ownership over your circumstances and then how you're going to respond to it. So I think to that point about good is, so what? These things happen. Like, good. What are you going to do about it? And if you own that and you own your response, then again, it's – and the thing about all this is you know, you look at a guy like him. He's up at 430 and he looks like a beast. You look at this guy. He's doing crazy things and we're like, man, I can't be that person. What they're fundamentally doing – is they're accepting ownership over their circumstances and how they respond to it. And that's something any of us can do. Mm-hmm. That's something any of us can do. Like you don't have to be in a military and do fight all these crazy wars and be winning all these crazy challenges. You just have to challenge yourself to accept the circumstance that you're handed and then how, and then choose how you're going to respond to it. Right. But that's incredibly empowering. Once you understand that, that frees you up and you're not limited by like your stupid teacher or your stupid parents or your stupid coach like no it's it's on me like i may not agree with this that or the other thing but i can choose how i can respond and that's on me right and that's the attitude part so when you said you can control two things and this is a quote that i i agree with and my college coach used to say this was you can control your effort and your attitude that's that's a quote that i think is is really true you can control what you do your effort and you might not control how you feel when you wake up in the morning. You might be in a bad mood for whatever reason. But I think you can find ways to control how you react to st- certain stimulus that you come across. Absolutely. You may not always control your feeling or your thought, but you can control your action, right? So I'm a mental health provider, and I talk a lot about thoughts and feelings and actions. And I talk about the fact that, you know, a lot of times we think too much and we feel too much, right? And and we can just do it, right? You're What's the emblem on your sweatshirt right now? It's a Nike swoosh, right? Just do it, right? Mm-hmm. It's not just think it, just feel it. It's just do it. And so sometimes we get so stuck about, I can't, I can't, it's too hard, or I'm uncomfortable, or I'm tired, or I'm anxious, or I'm sad. Those things may all be true. And it's not to minimize that, but what can you do, right? Like, what can you do? You know what? I can ask for help. Mm-hmm. I can get up and go for a walk. I can get up and go for a run. I can just get up and take a shower, right? right. Like, just doing those things, that's that piece about effort and attitude, right? Because it's how you choose to take that in and then what you do about it. Mm-hmm. Now, the other thing I add to that is gratitude because I think if you can then be appreciative of your circumstance and your ability to do something about it, that's incredibly, incredibly powerful. That goes a long way because you're in, in the case of gratitude, you are, 
if you take time out of your day to just think about whatever it is you're doing and and maybe how lucky you are you're you're putting out positive energy into the world that you will will return back to you in in a lot of ways too i think that's a powerful addition gratitude well so think about this the human brain right it negativity carries seven times more power than positivity so think about this you can have an amazing day everything can go well you guys had a great practice you know you be BL and lacrosse, right? You got an A on your tests. You know, the prettiest girl in school said yes, right? <laughs> and then, you know, you go home and your mom's yelling at you because your room's not clean. And now it's the worst day ever, mm-hmm. right? That's how we think. And so it's easy to say, just be positive. Just, you know, appreciate what you have. Be grateful, right? I've heard people say, well, like, just think about every day. Think about three things you're grateful for. The problem I have with that is it ends up being the same three things. It's like my health, my family, whatever. Right, like right. it's things you say around the Thanksgiving day table because you want to hurry up and eat the turkey, yeah. right? It's kind of cliche. It's very cliche. But what I think is when you start to train yourself. So I'll share this with you guys because I think it's an awesome thing. So um, every night my wife and I have what I call a gratitude challenge. So before we go to bed, um, she says, what's your thing? And I say what my thing is. And she says, I say, what's your thing? And what we do is we say, what happened that day? What was one thing that happened that day? that you're grateful for, right? It's like an actionable item, right? And so what happens is I wake up and I'm like, oh, this happened. This is going to be my thing. Then something else happens, right? Now it's, you know, 530. I'm coming on the Path to Follow podcast. I'm like, no, no, that's my thing, right? And I know at the end of the night, I have to show up, right? Because we have a challenge. And I'm a competitive guy. So I'm going to beat my wife in the gratitude challenge every (laughs) night. No question. I'm going to beat her, right? And The thing is I start looking for things to be grateful for because I don't know what's going to happen later on in the day, Mm -hmm. right? I don't know what's going to happen. So if something happens, I'm like, that's my thing. Then something else happens, like, that's my thing. And so by looking for these positive things that are occurring to be grateful for, what ends up happening is I find more of them, right? Because I'm looking for them. Also, the things that are negative, right, or the things that are setbacks or challenges or uncomfortable things within my day, I'm less likely to put emphasis on them because I'm looking at the positive things. So I think why I think gratitude is so important, right? And then we talk about it. It's the way that we end our day and we talk about it. And it's not like our highlights or our lowlights. It's like, no, what was one thing that happened? And it gets a little competitive. You don't need a wife or a spouse to do it, by the way. You can do it with a friend. You can do it with a buddy. You can do it with a parent. You can do it with yourself and write it down. Journal. Journal. And what happens is by the end of the week, when you're like, this is the worst week ever, you can look back and be like, wait, Monday, this happened. Tuesday, this happened. You can celebrate your wins of the week. Yeah. Right? Even, even little victories are huge. 100%. And you start to train yourself to look for these things and appreciate them. And what happens then is your attitude becomes more positive. Your effort becomes more positive, right? Think about it because you're thinking, if I think this way and I'm looking for these things and I push myself, I find things to be appreciative for. So why I think gratitude is so important is sometimes we say, I'm going to be positive, I'm going to be positive, and we work hard, and then we have setbacks and challenges. We don't make varsity, right? Or we get a poor grade on a test, again, whatever that means. Or our parent comes down on us, and it's hard to just stay positive. When you start to look for things to be appreciative and you incorporate gratitude into your training, that to me is a mindset thing. And this guy, by the way, calls failure a gift. He's grateful for the setbacks he had. Because it's allowed him to be stronger. And I think if we start to think that way, that's powerful. And that's a big thing I preach when I'm working with teams and athletes and corporations and and really anybody. And it's something I practice in my own life. So I love the gratitude challenge. I think I'm gonna start yeah. I'm gonna start doing that. But my question my question for you is, and this is one that I came in today thinking about 
why why is it that you tend to focus humans tend to focus on those negative things right if you if you just played a game and you had a couple goals you had a couple nice assists why is it that I'll be thinking about that one play that I threw the ball away right you said seven times negativity is seven times more powerful than positivity psychologically why is that the case yeah so I think one is I think we're biologically wired to do that, right? We tend to be more critical of each other. I think we're also trained to be, if you just look at like the media and the news, like we're always publicizing negative things that are happening, right? Negative things tend to be a little bit more exciting to pay attention to, right? I think about like just anything we do when something quote unquote bad happens. And the reason I say quote unquote is because I don't love using the words good or bad because I think they're just sort of these qualifying terms. But like when something happens that's um, that we view as negative, we tend to put more emphasis on it, right? We tend to be more critical of ourselves. I think the more high achieving we become, the more we start to really think about like these 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 negative things or these setbacks, you know what I mean? And so I think in general, biologically, we're wired that way to some extent. Or and then we're just state. trained that way. We're trained yeah. that way. Like you think about, you know, even growing up, like you can do all these great things and your parent will say, good job. And the minute you like drop something, pick that up. Don't touch that. Um, don't talk back at me. Why did you, right? It's like always, we're always picking upon like the things that we don't want to see um, rather than really focusing on the, the, the things we do want to see, right? So even when I'm working with parents, by the way, I tell them like, focus, if you want your kid to do something, like focus on what you want them to see, like catch them being good, right? Um, and we just, we constantly do that. It just as a, as a culture too, we use the word don't all the time. We constantly say, don't do this, don't do this, don't do that. The problem with the word don't is it intrusives doubt. And when you're in a high level stress situation, your brain actually removes the word don't. Mm -hmm. So if you think about it for any parent, right? If your kid, if you and your kid are getting into a little bit of a verbal altercation, you say, don't raise your voice. What's, what's your child going to do? If you say, don't talk back at me, what are they going to do? Right? Yeah. If your coach says, don't drop the ball, what's about to happen? Yeah. Don't turn the ball over. What's about to happen? Instead of keep possession, push the ball, right? Um, you see what I'm saying? Like, and that's how we think. So we're just trained to do this over time and it takes a lot of work to untrain these habits, mm -hmm. right? It's, you're really trying to, you know, set yourself up or reprogram yourself against this yeah. default setting we have everything. We just carry the negative weight a little bit further. We pay more attention to it. Yeah. And language is the most powerful powerful carrier of thought, right? So we talk in a negative, think about just in general, the way we talk, we tend to complain a lot, right? We we talk about the people in our lives that are negative, right? The the challenges that we're having. Very rarely, we'll celebrate the successes briefly, but we really highlight the struggles and the challenges. And so again, we convey that through our language. And so that starts to get ingrained in our thinking process. Because the more you hear it, and the more you say it, the more you believe it. So we start to look for and believe that like the world is a difficult place. Even through COVID, there's been a ton of challenges. But think about like these communities that have formed, these friendships that have formed, like people have really learned to take on certain things. Like there's been some growth. Some people have really grown through this process. Mm -hmm. um, and that's not to minimize, you know, the losses and the, and the health issues and the financial issues and the mental health issues either, but it's... Again, we really look at like how difficult everybody was saying like, man, 2020 just needs to end. Like as if January 1, the world's going to become a better right, place. Right. Like, <laughs> you still have to make choices. You still have to decide how you respond to your circumstance, right? Yep. But that's how we think. And then we talk about it. So everyone's like good riddance to 2020, good riddance to 2020. It became like this horrific year. Well, January 2021 was the same thing, yep. right? 
calendar doesn't care. It doesn't care. But guess what? Me and Dr. Quittervich are out here on the on the turf doing a thousand burpees on January 1. Why? Because if it's going to suck that bad, we're going to make it suck even worse. I love it. Absolutely. I love it. That's great. Um, another another thing that I was thinking a little bit about is we're talking about negativity and positivity. And as a coach uh, and as, a, as an ex-player and a college athlete, I, I just think about how coaches will sometimes yell at a player or get negative with a player about something that they just did, right? And that motivates some people to play better, perform better. Whereas for other players, it's like that will shut them down. That will make them think more. If you say don't drop the ball again, that's all I'm thinking about. I'm going to drop the ball for sure the next time it's thrown to me, right? Um, why is that? It's, coaching is so difficult, I think, because you have to really know your players and you have to know which which ones can I you know, clamp down on and tell them and get – somewhat negative with because I know that they're going to perform better versus which players do I need to be a little bit more positive with so that they, you know, they, they understand what they did wrong, but mm-hmm. perform better on the next play. Um, so wh- why do you, th- why do you think that is the case that some people, is it just a natural kind of characteristic of different people that they respond differently to that type of uh, feedback so listen, you coach lacrosse, right? Why are some athletes quicker and shorter and faster and you put them at attack, right? And other players are better at like guarding and, and riding with your man and you put them on defense, right? Because that's the skill set that they have. That's the way their body is built. And so you identify as a coach, this player is going to be more successful in this position is going to give our team more success in that position, right? Mm-hmm. So you identify the players you have. You identify their skill sets, their talent, their speed, their stick skills. You know what I mean? If you have a short, scrappy guy like me, you're going to maybe put them in a face-off position, right? Um, if you've got a tall, lanky guy like you, you might be a defender or midi, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so you look at the players you have and f- their physical skill set, and you identify where you're going to put them on the field, right? That's the art of coaching. But why not take that same philosophy and look at the way that they think, right? Because at the end of the day— they may be athletes, but they're human beings first, which means they have thoughts, they have feelings, they have emotions, they have experiences, like family experiences. Some of them may have a lot of pressure to excel athletically and they shut down more. Others of them like may be really grateful to be out here and like they want more. And so part of it is really identifying who your athletes are and not only their skill set on the field as a player, but who they are as a person, right? Mm-hmm. And I think when you start to identify that, you start to learn who you need to raise your voice with who you need to maybe be a little bit more quiet with when you're making a point, right? Who you need to stop and make sure they're looking at you when you're talking to them, maybe because they're distractible, right? Um, And sort of how to identify. And I think when you look at the most successful coaches, you see that their volume, their intonation, their assertiveness changes depending on the athlete. Some athletes, they let and they go and let them do their thing and they critique very little. Other ones need a lot of coaching, right? Mm -hmm. I think as a coach, if you want to really grow and evolve, with the game, you have to be able to evolve with the athlete, right? And athletes now have evolved. Number one, they're more opinionated. They're getting more information and knowledge through social media, through other technological means. They have a lot of other information coming in. And so you have to look at all of that and understand that they're going to be wired potentially differently. And they may have different thoughts or opinions. And frankly, if you don't know, ask. Like, Nick Saban is one of the best coaches out there, right? University of Alabama football. He knows what he knows and he knows what he doesn't know. So what does he do? He brings people in, 
mm-hmm. right? Or he asks questions. You know, a guy like Nick Saban is big on mental health and wellness with athletes because he understands that like the athlete is a human being. They're going to have mental health vulnerabilities. He addresses it. He brings support in, right? And I think that's another thing, again, as a mental health professional who's an athlete and a former Division One athlete is really understanding how important it is to recognize that anxiety is a part of the experience. We need to address it versus just saying, hey, toughen up or get, get tougher, right? Or just work harder, right? right? But I think if we're willing to understand these things, you're going to get to know these athletes better. And, and any athlete who's had a great coach, you know what they always say? They're like, man, they may be a, a great, they made me a better player, but they may be even better human being, mm-hmm. right? They prepared me for lacrosse, but they prepared me for life. Like that's what they say. And that's not about just the sport. It's that beyond the sport, they cared for me as a human being, as a person, and they wanted to develop me, right, as an adult, as an, as in this case, as a respectful young man who not only respects his teammates, but he respects his peers. He respects the women in his life. He respects his bosses, right? He expects, respects the world. Right. And, and that's it, important. And has made an effort to understand how my mind works, right? And the Nick Saban example, like asking a player, you know, what does motivate you? I, I, I would have, I would like that if a coach would to take the time and care about how I might respond to certain. Yeah. How should to, I communicate right, with you? What right. is helpful for you? What should I know about you? Yeah. Like these are simple questions that take a couple of extra seconds, but the payoff is so much greater than you don't have to yell and say, this kid, you have a poor attitude. You're not showing up because maybe there's a lot going on that you don't know. Mm-hmm. Um, and maybe it's just about pulling you on the side, put your arm around him and saying, Hey, what's going on? You can get much further with that sometimes if you're willing to actually look for it. So it's like, again, if you're willing to look for those skill players, it's not just who's faster, who's big, who's small, who's fast. It's like, who's got the stick skill and the intangible that I can put in this position. They're going to help me win. It's the same thing for the mind. Mm-hmm. And if you look for it, You'll find it, just like we talked about earlier. You will find it. You just have to be willing to look. And I think the coaches who are willing to evolve, they end up being very, very successful at this level. And they build these crazy, amazing, strong relationships with their athletes. The ones that just continue to yell and bark and just play the game, same game they played 20 years ago, they'll get a few players. Right. And they'll motivate the guys that respond well to that. But, but not, what about the, not rest the whole of the team? team? No. Not the whole yeah. Team. So you may have a couple of great players, but what about the whole team and the culture of the team? Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. That's the other thing. It's such a personal business. It's such an interpersonal game. So, I mean, you're building relationships. You're teaching, right? Yep. A teacher has to identify their kids and different ways to teach them, right? A parent has to understand how you talk to one kid may, may be different than the way you talk to another kid. It's the same thing. Why on the field is it any different, right? And that's one of the things that I've identified from working at Gilman and teaching at Gilman and, and knowing a lot of my players on a personal basis. Like I see them in class, I see them at assembly, I see them at lunch. Whereas in the college at world of athletics, from my experience and from a lot of people I've talked to who play college sports, particularly lacrosse, just because that's my, my world, it's the coaches – they have you for a couple hours of the day. They, they don't have all the time in the world to say, hey, you know, come to my office, let's chit-chat, let me get to know you really well. It seems more that, you know, they're moving a little bit quicker. And, um, you know, if you're not performing to, you know, to your peak performance and you're not going to play, like they don't really care as much about you as, say, at a school like this where, you know, I'm trying to figure out why is that guy not responding well on the field? Maybe it's something I'm doing. Maybe it's my communication. I have more time and my hand in, in more areas of this kid's life where I can identify that and make adjustments, whereas it's not the same thing in, in college. I think, you're, I think you're right. I think 
what's really interesting about a school like too, it brings unique people in here that really want to get to know the student as an individual, right? And then students come here. So there's a sense of community, there's a sense of um, family, there's a sense of brotherhood, like teachers are always available for office hours and extra, and teachers also coach and then coaches also teach and, you know, um, and so I think there's this sense of just the, the culture of the people that come to this school and the people that teach at this school and the people that, you know, lead this school, right? And then and then the alumni, right? Like you've got people like myself and other folks who really kind of come back and want to stay involved because they believe in that. So I think in that sense, it makes this school extremely special and unique. And that's why it is what it is, right? It's because of the people. It's because of the people, mm-hmm. right? Um that being said, at the other level, if you're just looking at wins and losses as your delineation of whether you're a good coach or not, that's where you fall short, right? And you may have one or two successful seasons, but it's not going to be sustainable. When you look at a guy like Nick Saban, you look at a guy like Phil Jackson in the NBA, right? Pete Carroll in the NFL. These coaches have really built long-term relationships with their players, and they've spent the extra time getting to know them, mm-hmm. right? And they're finding that they're not only able to have one successful season, but two and three and four, and then they build dynasties. Why? Because they have the best players? Not necessarily. It's because they take the time to really get to know these players and then connect them with other players, right? And then overall, a sense of culture and family comes up. So now they're able to talk about basketball or football, but they're also able to talk about like, hey, how's how's things with your mom? How's things with your kids, right? The same thing you guys do here at Gilman, right? Right. But they've taken the time to put that in place. So a coach can do it if they want to do it. And those are generally the coaches that stick around for years and years and years and then develop these dynasties. And then what happens? The best players want to go to them. Why? Because they want to win and because Coach Saban cares or Coach Carroll cares or Coach Jackson cares, right? So now you develop this situation and this culture. The better players want to come with you because you take them under your wing. You treat them like people because all their life they've been treated like the best player. Mm-hmm. And so that looks great, but then there's a void there, right? There's still people. So if you start to care about them and you appreciate them, that's the full, everything, that's the full thing. everything grows. And again, traditionally speaking, if you look at Gilman Athletics over the history of the MIAA, generally speaking, they've been one of the more successful schools. Is it because they have the best players? They have some, one of the smaller enrollments, right? Right? They're not co-ed. They don't have a lot of things, but it's because I think that they provide this sense of community and culture and family. Mm-hmm. that is really, really beneficial to everybody. And that's something I think we can all take. Yeah. I wonder, I was thinking a little bit about why don't college coaches really really know that, but they probably do. It's just such a tough balance to strike with, with you have to win. You have to win games. Maybe the the time. And the and you're afraid, you're afraid if I don't win immediately, then I'm going to be replaced, right? So there's that also feel or failure like that they have, that they have, right? So they skimp on the effort. Mm-hmm. They skimp on the attitude. They're not necessarily as appreciative because they're so focused on outcomes and they, and again, they may have one or two successful seasons, but it's very rarely sustainable. Mm-hmm. And that's yeah. why you see so much turnover in coaching, right? But think about the coaches, the Mike Krzyzewskis, right? The Roy Williams. Think about these coaches in wrestling, Dan Gable, Bill Tierney, mm-hmm. right? In lacrosse. Think about these coaches and the impact they've had on players and they, all their players talk about the relationships. I had one guy on my podcast who went to Severn School in Maryland, walked on to Princeton's team, and he is a physician now, and he thinks about things that Coach Tierney said to him every day, and he preaches it within his kids, right? And I had him on the podcast, and he talked about all this stuff. Coach Tierney, without him sending it to him, somebody else sent it to Coach Tierney. Coach Tierney wrote him an email and said, 
I am so grateful and it was an honor to coach you and I love what you're doing. And then he made his entire team, which is University of Denver, listen to it, right? And one of Gilman's former students is on that team, right? I love that, yeah. And he sends me an email, he goes, Dr. T, I just listened to your podcast that Coach <laughs> Tierney made us listen from this other guy. But like, it was about treating him like a human being and teaching him how to be an, a human being, right? And that guy's had immense success on the lacrosse field, right? That's awesome. From Princeton to Denver. And it's about treating the person like human being. So the formula is there. You just have to be willing to take the time. But anything in life, if you do the small things and you do the right things, you're going to be more successful. Mm-hmm. It's the same thing about taking into account other people. If you shortcut because you want a quick win or a quick A, you yeah. might get it. But it's not going to be sustainable. For sure. I love that. Um, thinking a little bit about some players and some athletes who have a lot of chatter in their mind, right? On, on the practice field, in the games, at a high level of competition and they're maybe thinking too much what are some things that those athletes can do to lessen the chatter and maybe develop some more confidence and a quieter mind and more poise in their sport because they could have all the skills in the world they could be the you know the best shooter on the basketball team right but they're thinking too much and they're talking too much to themselves how can they figure out that mental component? Because I've I've dealt with that a little bit, and, and I think it becomes harder, you know, the higher the competition is, the more you start talking, the more you start questioning yourself. Um, what are some solutions, some tangible ways that, that, that athletes can lessen those voices? Yeah. So I think, I think it's a great question, and I'll— I'll answer it with an analogy first, right? Like anyone that's had, so you're talking about anxiety and doubt, right? The chatter is generally, what if this happens? What if this happens? The doubt, what if you mess up, right? That's the chatter, right? Mm-hmm. It's usually critical. It's usually negative in nature. It's not like you're amazing. Keep doing great. Like those thoughts come and go, but it's like the critical stuff, right? And so think about this. Any one of us who's had siblings, right? Um, there have been times in our lives where we think like this this sibling is so annoying. Like, I wish they would just shut up, right? And there are times in our life where, like, I would, my life would be so much better if I didn't have this sibling, mm-hmm. right? And we go to our parents and we're like, mom, dad, like, my sister, my brother just won't shut up. And what do your parents always say? Just ignore, right? Pay attention to something else. Do something else. Once you realize your sibling's not going anywhere, they're not, you can't legally get rid of them, right? <laughs> like, they're not going anywhere. Why? Because they're part of your family experience. Whether you chose for them to be there or not, they're there. They're part of your family experience. Once you identify that and you learn when to ignore them, how to ignore them, when to pay attention to them, when to play with them, right? When to walk away from them, right? Once you learn those things, they're significantly less annoying. And sometimes you even enjoy having them around, right? To me, anxiety and doubt are like those annoying siblings. They're not going anywhere. And the further you get and the more competitive you get in sports, the more it's going to be there. Why? Because you're thinking, you're processing. There's more at risk, right? And I think those of us who think we have to get rid of the chatter, that's where we struggle because it's like, I want to get rid of my brother or my sister and I'm telling them to get out of my room and they just won't move. Mm-hmm. Right. So I get frustrated. I get overwhelmed. Why won't they just leave? Right. Once you identify, this is a part of my athletic experience. One is I'm an athlete, but I'm a human being, which means I have a brain, which means I have thoughts, which means I have feelings, which means I have doubts. Right. Which means I have anxiety. Once you identify that, that first of all can minimize a lot because you're not so paralyzed by like, why is this happening? It's not just you. It's everyone. No, it's everyone because we're human beings, right? And we're challenging ourselves. And we're pushing ourselves. And we're putting pressure on ourselves. That's one thing. The other thing is then you learn how to ignore it, right? And the way you learn how to ignore something is by paying attention to something else. So there's skills that athletes can do. We can all do it, right? But there's skills that we can do that really can help 
lower our level of anxiety and shift our focus. So like breathing is one thing I talk a lot about. And, but there's a different kind of breathing that I do and it's very intentional, it's very focused. That's one thing that it can be incredibly helpful if it's done intentionally with a specific process, right? Not just breathe, not just take a deep breath. Visualization can be incredibly powerful if it's done the effective, appropriate way. And again, that's creating steps, it's creating sequences. It's really focusing on what you're gonna do, right? Using language appropriately. Remember we talked about thoughts and negativity and using language. So developing mantras and sayings, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so one saying that that has been famous at Gilman is B. Gilman, right? B. Gilman, yep. Sherman Bristow said it years ago, yep. right? Um, it's been a big thing. So when I worked with the football team, we broke down what does B. Gilman mean? And G was, you know, gratitude, right? Um, Every letter had something, you know what I mean? Um, I was intensity, L was legacy, right? A was attitude, right? Mm-hmm. And N was never give up, never quit, right? So we define the word. And if you say these things and you identify what they mean and use them intentionally, your brain starts to believe them and hear them over and over again, right? Mm-hmm. So I think these are a couple of skills that like, if you think about breathing and you really quiet your mind, right? and you relax your body. You think about what you want to focus on skill set wise through visualization. You think about language and how you want to utilize it. If you have a setback or a failure, you reframe it. Instead of fail, you think about this is my first attempt in learning, right? Mm-hmm. You're appreciative for what you do. You look for ways to be grateful, right? If you do these things, they're all habits. They're all habits that you create that have to do with something you can control, but they minimize the chatter and if anything they help you utilize it instead of having it control you. Right. right. Think about when you appreciate what your sibling does or what they have to offer. They're less annoying. Yeah. Right. Think about when you talk to your sibling a certain way. They respond differently. Right. Think about when they just piss you off and you take a couple of deep breaths and you walk away. It's a different outcome as when you're huffing and puffing and you're getting in their face and you're saying, don't raise your voice at me. Don't raise your voice at me. The more you say that, what do they do? Stop pushing me. Stop annoying me. Don't, don't, don't. The more we do those things, the worse <laughs> it gets. Right. Yeah. And then we're like helpless and we're screaming, mom. Right. But if we identify things that we can control and we look for ways to do it, we minimize the chatter. Yeah, that's And like, that's what it is, right? The chatter is the anxiety and doubt. It's like your annoying brother or sibling or parent. How do we ignore those people by paying attention to other things? Yeah, it's a great example because if you if you just ignore me, and I'm, I, all I'm looking for is a reaction when I'm like, you know, teasing my little sister. It's, I'm just looking for a reaction. That's what that's what those voices in your head are looking for too almost, right? Um so I'll tell you, I have a real quick story. So, and he's open about it. He's talked about it. So Matt Stover, two-time Super Bowl champ, right? Baltimore yeah. Ravens, ring of honor, right? He comes to me. His son is a big golfer, right? Um, wants to go pro. And he's like, Dr. T, I want you to work with Joe. And he goes, I want you to help him get rid of the doubts. And I look at him. I go, that's not going to happen. And he's like, what? And I gave him the same thing, right? Yeah. And he's like, oh my goodness, you're right. I said, we have to work with him, right? And so once we identified that, his game opened up and stuff like that. And he started to look at it, and he st- he's starting to use different language. And this is a guy that even when he was kicking, he said, I used to have all these doubts, and I would say, stop, stop. But once I realized they were there and they weren't going anywhere, I was actually able to kick much more effectively, right? He just He's like, I just didn't know how to conceptualize it, right? Mm-hmm. And this is a high-level athlete, but once he understood that and realized it, it was a whole other thing. And I was mm-hmm. like, we're not getting rid of it, because if your kid is going to play golf at a high level, he's going to have doubts. He's mm-hmm. going to have anxiety. They're going to pop up. You just have to figure out so what to do. So let's not worry about if they pop up. Let's figure out when they do and how we can navigate it, how we can utilize it. And let's use it to our advantage, right? Nope, so. Nope. so so, talk to me a little bit about visualization because that was something that I was thinking about too. And I was looking up um, 
this is maybe a separate topic, but maybe it ties in the hot hand fallacy, right? When you when you start shooting, you know, from your spot and you and you make one goal and then you make another goal, you think that you're not going to miss, right? I used to play basketball with with a kid growing up and he hit a three and then he hit another one and then he every time he touched the ball, he wouldn't have an open shot, but he'd think he'd make it and they'd start falling in. Um so may, those are two separate topics, but maybe we could start out with that, the, the hot hand fallacy, because that's confidence, right? That's Well, so I think, I think you know, it's interesting. You said they're two separate topics. I think they're one and the same in the sense that when we see something, we believe it to be real. And the more we see it, the more we believe it to be real, right? Mm-hmm. So you shoot a shot from a certain angle. You're like, that went in. You're like, hmm, I can do that. You do it again. It goes in again. You're like, so the more you see that the more your brain starts to identify that that's real, that can happen. And that builds your confidence because now your mind tells your body, shoot this way. Mm -hmm. So all your muscles and your hands and everything work together because you have all these neuronal pathways, right? And the more you do it, the more you're strengthening those pathways and those tracks, basically. It's not actually a fallacy. It's real. It's very real. And the way that visualization works is the same part of your brain lights up when you do it in your mind as when you do it on the field, right? Because on the field, you may get a hot hand and it's great for a while. But eventually, it's going to go away, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but in your in your head, that field is always open. It's always seven degrees. It's always sunny, right? And you get to control the outcome. So you get to control how you do that skill. And the more you do it in your head, the same part of your brain gets activated. The same part of your mind gets activated. Those connections have already formed with the rest of your body. So now your brain sees it over and over again. So think about if you legit shot that three 100 times and made it or you legit shot that shot a hundred times and really, really made it, your confidence would continue to grow. And you would start to find that when I shoot this way from this angle with, you know, my hands and my arms and everything work together, you don't think about all that. It just becomes a natural reflex. But now that shot starts to work, Mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. Because you practice it. The difference is on the field, you can only get so many reps. Some, you know, you can't always control what the defender's doing. You can't always control what position you're in, but in your head, you can. Where a lot of people go wrong is they visualize the end result. They visualize like you shoot it and it goes in, you win the MIAA championship, like Calvert Hall's crying, BL's on the floor whining, McDonough's got their, you know, feather tail behind their legs, and like here we are. We don't visualize a sequence, but before you shoot a a hot hand, you have to know where to stand, how to hold the ball, right? Mm -hmm. How you're going to get that that whip and that, right? Like you have to know whether you're going high to low, low to high, whatever. You have to have steps. And I think where visualization can become incredibly valuable is if we do it in steps. Hmm. So if we visualize, if we break it down into, I usually say three to five steps, because if it's like 12 steps, then it's just arduous and task. If it's just one or two steps, it's not a, it's not a process, but instead of visualizing the end product, visualize a step-by-step process and first visualize step one. So if you're looking at shooting a lacrosse, right, figure out where your hand and foot position is, right? Right. Then maybe you're going to fake it. Right. Then you, you know, you shoot it a certain way and you follow through. Right. There's that. So put it in steps, create a sequence three to five steps. Now day one, visualize step one, 20 times, 30 times, perfectly. Day two, visualize it 20 times. Day three, 20 times. Think about this. Over the five-day period, if you've done 20 reps a night, that's 100 extra reps perfectly in your head. Wow. If you've done it 100 extra times perfectly in your head, think about the next time you step out on your field. Now your mind has seen it, and it's the same part of your brain. Um, it, might not, it might even be the same as doing it, right? So they did a study one time where they had certain people actually doing bicep curls and other people visualizing bicep curls for a period of time. Second group got jacked. 
The second group is just as strong <laughs> as the first group. Really? Not kidding. No way. Not kidding. So you want, you got to understand that your brain is connected to your body through nerves, right? Those nerves go into muscles. And you can stimulate those nerves in different ways by actually doing the skill or by triggering the point of the brain that, that is like the, the, the beginning part of it, right? Oh my gosh. And it's so, once you understand, and so what happens, most people, they visualize the end result, they feel good for a second, they go out, it doesn't work, they're like, this doesn't work. Right. It's stupid. They just do it once. Right. But they haven't put in the effort they, or they don't do it the right way, right? They don't create a plan and a sequence and then actually drill it. The athletes I've worked in, when they visualize it, it's incredibly valuable. So I talked about Matt Stover, right? He talks so much about his visualization process and how int- intricate it was, how he did it, and the time he needed to do it, which is 15 seconds, by the way. So when a kicker comes out, they need 15 seconds, right? So if you listen to my Matt Stover podcast, a couple years ago, the Ravens lost, uh, they, they missed the field goal. Billy kind of missed the field goal against mm-hmm. the Patriots, right? I remember that, yep. Yep. The problem was Billy kind of only had 13 seconds. He didn't get a chance to go through his whole process, including his visualization, right? <laughs> we look at it and we think Billy Cundiff missed the kick, right? Matt Stover looked at it and said he needed 15 seconds. They had rushed out. They had mismanaged the clock. Bill Belichick's on the other clock. He doesn't call timeout. He didn't ice the kicker oh, wow. because he knew he didn't have enough time. And part of his process was setting the ball, breathing, doing his visualization, seeing the ball go in perfectly. He rushed it. He didn't have a chance to do it. And it was the coaching staff on the Ravens that was new at the time who didn't think to call timeout, which they had. So this is why, like, and and this was the difference between the Ravens going to the Super Bowl that year and not potentially, right? And it, to someone who's not a kicker and hasn't done this visualization, what's two seconds? It's like they don't two know, seconds. and they don't get it, and they think Billy kind of sucks. So what happens? He gets fired. He leaves. His kids, you know, get pulled out of private school. They oh. have to move. Matt Stover looks at it and says, Bill Belichick was a genius because he knew we didn't have enough time and Bill, Billy kind of didn't get a chance to do his visualization, right? And he talks about it on my podcast, which I think is so, it's so cool to hear his perspective. But these top athletes, you know, Juan Dixon, who played for Maryland, won the national championship, is a coach right now. I work with Juan's team. When I met with his team, he talked so much about how visualization has been so important for these guys, right? Any top level, Tom Brady, mm-hmm. as much as we want to hate the guy, the guy is a big believer in visualization. He legitimately has seen things thousands and thousands of times. Yes, he's played for 20 plus years, right? Yes, like he's been in these fourth quarter comeback situations. But think about how many times he's done it in his head. So when he comes out there, it becomes automatic. It's another rep. It's another rep for him. And we look at these guys and we're like, man, they're so amazing. They're so talented. Tom Brady was like the 199th pick, right? Mm -hmm. He wasn't talented. He wasn't great. He worked hard, but he also worked on the mental game. And so, like, that's why visualization is so important. But again, as younger athletes, we don't see the difference immediately. We give up on it. Or we just visualize the end product. But if you break it in steps, what you're doing is you're creating muscle memory, but you're doing it from the source, which is your brain. That is amazing. It's cool, right? I did not know that. I um, One thing that's always stuck with me from playing lacrosse in college is I think it was a coach or another guy on my team said, I like to come out the day before a game and just stand in front of the goal not a really a realistic shot like you know five to ten yards outside right in the middle of the goal no goalie in there with a bunch of balls just throw the ball into the goal and watch it go in right it's an easy shot you're probably not going to get it that much in the game but just watch the act of watching the ball go in the goal that increases confidence right it increases your you know ability to visualize success, all these things that that can translate into the game. 
the more you see it, the more you believe it's real, right? The more you see it, the more you believe it's real. That's in anything in life, right? You grow up in a loving household with two parents and they always have dinner together. You believe that's what a family's like. You grow up in a household where it's a single mom, um, you know, then you believe that's what a family's like. You grow up in a household with a lot of yelling and abuse. You believe that's what a family's like, right? Mm -hmm. Like Mm -hmm. what we see, we believe to be real. That's just how our minds work. So instead of seeing it accidentally, why not create it? Why not write the script? Why not look for opportunities? So what your what your guy was doing was looking for opportunities to sit there and watch the ball go in the goal, yeah. right? And watch it go in. And so your brain sees it over and over again. So the next day, he's of course, he's more confident. Why? Because he's seen the ball go in. He knows that when he shoots the ball, it's supposed to go in. Mm-hmm. So he's willing to take those shots. He's willing to take those chances because from his viewpoint, it goes in every time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, right. th- and now I know that you don't even have to, you know, really do the act. You could just sit at home and watch it go in. You can do it in your head because in your head, that court or that field is always, always open and you get to control the narrative. But so many times we're too busy. We don't have enough time. 20 reps in your head, two to three minutes, perfectly. And you can correct the errors, right? But it makes a huge, huge difference in anything we do, whether we're in theater. Think about how many times they rehearse their lines in front of the mirror. They close their eyes. They rehearse their lines, what they're going to say, right? Mm-hmm. Think about a gymnast getting ready to go up. They're moving a little bit awkwardly, getting their position. Eyes are closed. They're visualizing, right? Any high-level performer, business meetings, before they go in to give a bright, big presentation, they visualize, Right? They think about the audience and a public speaker not wearing clothes. That's visualization, right? Mm-hmm. It it lowers your um lowers your anxiety level, improves your confidence, right? Makes it a little bit less scary. All these things we tell, imagine this, imagine that, imagine that. Imagineering is Walt Disney's term for visualization, right? Yeah. He came up with that word. We all talk about it, but very rarely do we actually put a plan in place and practice it. Yeah. And if you practice it, it becomes a part of your thinking, a part of your reputation. And listen, I've been doing this now for several years. When I'm doing a workout, I usually visualize myself doing it. When I'm doing a difficult thing, I visualize myself doing it. At the same time, I still cut it short sometimes. And then guess what? That's where I make mistakes. Mm-hmm. But when I actually do it, that's when I feel better. That's when I get more confidence up. Yeah. Yeah. Do you, so before... When you train athletes, do you tell them like the night before their game, like just sit in a quiet place and just think about the the um, the, the shot, right? So let me tell is you that, this: the night the night before a game is that the first time you learn how to shoot a goal? No, no. It has to be a process. It has to be every day, and it has to be well in advance because, like, all of a sudden, are you going to try this new trick shot that you've never tried in the finals um, of the MIAA? No, you've practiced it a hundred times. You've practiced it right. Yeah. Um, that's that's the that's the thing, right? With any of these things, if you truly want to become proficient at it, you have to integrate it into your training. Otherwise, it just becomes like a thing. So yes, if you've practiced it and then you do it the night before big game, yes, it's like do I tell somebody review study your notes for the first time before a test? Ideally, no. If you've studied them and you've rehearsed them, then what do you do the night before the test? You review them. Yeah. Same thing. Same thing. Right. Um, and so these are the same concepts that if you put it into your training, then not only is it something you can automatically access, because then what you're doing is you're taking that film of you doing that skill and basically putting it to the front of your mind. And that's what you see before you go out there. Right. Mm. But if it's already been there and it's been, those tracks have been laid. Second nature. It's second nature. What happens? Confidence goes up. Anxiety and chatter goes down. You're in the zone more. The zone is part of the process. Part of the process to get to the zone includes visualization. 
And we also train how to get into the zone, by the way. So the zone is the, the next question that I had for you. What, like psychologically, what does that mean? Because I've felt that before, and it's the best thing ever. I'm not thinking. Yeah. I'm just playing. It's it's amazing. And some people don't even really know the, what the zone is. But it, like when it happens, it's like you can't miss a shot. It's almost like the hot hand situation where – uh, it's the best. You have no flaws, right? So You're it's not a, thinking. It's a real biological, physiological thing. They call it a flow state sometimes. They call it being in the flow, right? So they measure brain waves, and there are certain brain waves, you know. But here's the here's the idea, right? You've heard of conscious, right? Conscious is we're thinking, we're processing information. It's good to be conscious. Mm-hmm. Sometimes conscious gets in our way, right? We have worries, we have doubts, we process all this information, right? We know what unconscious is, right? That's like when you're just laid out, right? Mm-hmm. There's this there's this place called subconscious. It's where you're awake and you're alert, but you're not overthinking things. And it's kind of on this like kind of core, like crude brain level, right? Where it's just working, but it's, 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 it doesn't need to process all this information. It just needs to cut through and do what it needs to do. And that's the zone, right? And that's where people talk about it seems like the game slows down. The ball gets bigger in baseball, right? Everybody's moving slower. You have this, our brains have this ability to manipulate time. There's chronological time and there's how we view time, and right? And so we have this ability to manipulate time in our brains, right? And that's a whole other conversation for another time. But if you think about certain memories in our lives, we have way, carry way more importance and we remember them. And they might have chronologically been shorter. Mm-hmm. But there's there's we remember them. And there's other things like driving to work every day that might be 20, 30 minutes and we forget it every day, yep. right? But this three-second experience where we had this amazing shot – like we'll remember everything about it, right? Somehow time slowed down there. Right. And it's this flow state where it's this ability to take information. It's very efficient. It takes a ton of energy. So you can't be in the zone all the time. Oh, okay. You can't be in the zone all the time because it's just so exhausting. But once you get there and you understand that it's a real place, you can access it more. So most of us have stumbled there, right? We just kind of like we're going along, we're playing, and all of a sudden everything kind of lined up and it was like we were just in it and we were playing. And it's like, how do I get back there? Well, there's a way to train it. Guys like Tom Brady, right? Guys like LeBron James. Um, you know, uh, recently I was on a call with Brandy Chastain, who was on the women's uh, World Cup soccer team, right? Like they talk about these situations where they're able to get themselves in and it's like you shut the world off and everything just kind of slows down, right? But it's a trained process. Isn't that, that that sounds like a conscious decision to me, though? Like to get yourself into a train. Doesn't that well? It's conscious too much to get thinking? into the training, right? But think about any other reflex in life. You train it over and over again. When you need it, it becomes automatic, right? Mm-hmm. Think about how many balls you'll shoot now, right? Where you just whip the ball in, you're not even thinking about it, and it goes like top right, right? Or you go high to low, or you do some like dodge, re-dodge, and you're not even thinking about it, and all of a sudden you're breaking ankles, right? Mm-hmm. And yeah. you're and people are like, how did he do that? And you're like, I don't know. I just did it. Like you weren't thinking I need to go left. I need to cut back. I need, right. You were just doing it. Why? Because you practiced it so many times. So there are these mental skills that we can do to get ourselves in a situation where when we need it, we can automatically access it. So I have this pyramid that I call controlling your consciousness. And I train athletes on developing a sequence, again, a process of how to get into that zone. And the more you train it and you do it that way and you do it step one, two, and three, right? You don't skip steps. It's like showing your work in math. As annoying as it is, as frustrating as it is, you're going to get that difficult problem. And if you've showed your work and you've gone through that process, you're going to get it. 
If you're constantly shortcutting because you're so smart and you're so smart and it's so annoying, you're going to get that really challenging problem. You're going to be like, I don't understand what happened. And you won't even be able to figure it out. Why? Because like you didn't go through the process. Same kind of thing. But you train yourself. So now what happens is your brain knows that when you're in these moments, you can access it. And it becomes an automatic thing. It just does it. It's muscle memory, right? It's muscle memory. And you know, I need this muscle for this situation and you just do it. Mm-hmm. And it's crazy how it works, but it works. Time right? plus repetition equals muscle memory and then you can access the flow state from there right yeah and it's about again doing the reps the right way right Mm -hmm. putting in the time and doing it in a certain sequence so again how you do anything is how you do everything if you just shortcut stuff and you're like yeah it's cool to get there great it feels good when you get there but then you're like how do i find that right if you actually have a plan and a process and you train it you'll be able to access it much more readily. It doesn't mean every time you need it, it's going to happen. But if you look at some of these top athletes and you're like, why is it that every time they're in this situation, they just like, like Steph Curry, Steph Curry, LeBron James. I mean, any of these people, yep. right? Why is it that in these big moments, they can make these crazy shots and do these crazy things? It's up here. Steph Curry can't get everybody to line up in a certain way. LeBron can't get everybody to be in a certain situation at a certain time to do things, right? Mm-hmm. But he can drill it over and over again in his mind. And so when it happens, he's been there. He already knows what people are going to do. So Ray Lewis and Ed Reed, right? We're in Baltimore, right? They were big on visualization. Ray Lewis was huge on visualization, got Ed Reed into it. They knew what Peyton Manning was going to do before Peyton Manning did it. So they would look at formations and he would say, he's going to switch to this and he's going to switch that because they would watch film and then they would visualize what they were going to do. They could watch what the other team was going to do, but then they would visualize their response. So they would get in these formations where they would be able to jump the ball before Peyton even knew they were there. And they talked about it. It was because they visualized it. They openly talk about it all the time. It's amazing. So, I mean, again, these are top-level athletes, and they constantly talk about it. So if Ray Lewis is going to put in visualization, LeBron James is going to put in visualization, right? Uh, Brandy Chastain is going to put in visualization. Um, Abby Wambach on the U.S. Women's National Team. Serena Williams. If these people are doing this, and they're saying, this is why I'm successful, why can't we? Mm-hmm. We have a mind. We have the ability to do it. Like, why it, Why can't we do it? And it's not and why just shouldn't sports, we? right? It's, it's anything. anything. Theater public speaking, art, anything, mm-hmm. any, how to interact with our peers, right? right? What they're going to say, what I'm going to say, how I'm going to react. So we can go through these sequences in our head and actually visualize our expression and their expression and top like business professionals who give presentations, they do it. They talk about it. Yeah. Brown advisory. I did a program for them. Some of these guys go through visualization sequences when they're pitching a product or they're pitching a portfolio. They go through a visualization sequence. Mm. Probably learned probably a lot of them ex athletes. They probably learned it there. A lot of them are ex athletes. Sports translates to anything, and it's a good way to it's a good uh, metaphor to use because people understand a skill, right, and an action. Um, But again, the concepts within the brain are very similar, and you can use these to really. And that's to me, that's where you get more confidence and you get more quote unquote mentally tough is when you train your brain to be able to do things, and then you really need it. Like that's toughness. Mm-hmm. It's not just yelling louder or running faster or, you know, yelling. It, like, that's not what it is. It's about training yourself to do these things. And yeah. we come back to Goggins. Like, these are things he's done. Yeah. And he also remembers all the other negative stuff. So, like, he's going to put in that work and visualize it in his head because he doesn't want to go back there. Yeah. It's a, it's a process. It's the same thing as practice. It's probably more important than actually practicing your sport is practicing 
the mental component. And I, I obviously depends I'm, who you talk to, I'm right? Preach, You're talking to me. I, yes. Preaching to yeah. the choir here, the, the mindset guy, but, um, Dr. T, it's been a lot of fun tonight. You really, I, I love, I'm learning a lot from you. I'd love to have you on again. I love how you call the brain the source because it really is the source of everything. And you can really tap into it if you know how to, how to get there and how to do it the right way. Um, it can help in all of these areas that we're discussing, not only sports. Um, one thing we didn't get to tonight was, was meditation, which I did a special topics podcast on, but it's the same thing, right? Visualization, just training the mind and quieting the mind and, and figuring out how to tap into all the, to me, the mysteries to you, just the, the basic facts of the brain and, and the amazing things we can do with it. Yeah, no, I think I think you're right. They're all just different ways of getting there. But we all, some of them work for some of us, some of them don't work for any of us. Um, you know, for anyone who's listed, you mentioned my podcast, The Mindset Experience. That's a great example of other individuals and they talk about these contexts. So it's like one thing for me to talk about. It's another thing to hear some of these pro athletes and some of these great, some are coaches, some are moms, um, some are, you know, uh, business people that have, you know, achieved a lot of success. So when you listen to, the podcast, part of the reason I have this, these people on there is to share their experiences about mindset and how they've done things. So I think anyone listening to it's like, well, I don't, I want to learn more about this or learn more of that. Mm -hmm. These are great ideas to say, okay, well, how does he do it? How does she do it? How does this mom do it? How does this kid do it? Who's had these challenges? And, and you really identify and learn that like, we all do them in different ways, but some of these things will resonate with, with, with different people, right? And it's about just hearing the same message but presented differently by different people. And if right. you hear it in a couple of different voices, one of them's going to stick. Different sports, it doesn't matter. It's the same training of the mind. Mm -hmm. Where can people find your podcast if they, if they want to check it out? Absolutely. I appreciate it. So it's called The Mindset Experience. It's on all you know podcast sites, iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, Spotify, um, if they go to my website, which is mindsettraininginstitute.com, it has a link to the podcast as well, as well as like the training that I do for athletes, coaches, parents, uh, corporations, stuff like that. So um, those are both two, you know, uh, avenues that they can get to me. And then, you know, my email is mindsettraininginstitute at gmail.com. And I'm always available to answer questions or give advice. And I love it. It's fun. This is, I'm at a point in my career where it's really fun to be able to kind of help people achieve, you know, greatness and become better versions of themselves. And every time I do it, it makes me better. And that's, what's so cool about it. Like yeah. I inspire others, they inspire me. And it's like, it's a cool thing. And I'm sure as, as much as you know about the mind and about training and athletics, like these other athletes are maybe giving you some, some more things to add to your toolbox. 100%. I learn from them and they learn from me and like we all get better and that's pretty cool too. And we build these amazing relationships, right? And these amazing connections. So I'd love to come back on. I love what you guys are doing here. I think it's phenomenal. I think it's great. I think it's great for the school and it's just, uh, it's another reason why Gilman is what it is. I appreciate it. We got it. all the credit goes to Chesre. He's, uh, he's the podcast guy. He's setting it all up. So Chesre, thanks a lot. Dr. T, I appreciate, appreciate it. it. And we'll see you soon. Sounds good. I appreciate it. Thanks for having me.